Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program about the wonderful world of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have an announcement of a new project we're doing about our modern vehicles information and control systems a help or hindrance with driver distraction. Also, Nissan's much-needed four new models, BMW's all-new electric iX3, and New Zealand's clean air car discount scheme goes to stage two, which includes fees for high-polluting vehicles. In our feature story, we were very fortunate to interview Tim Schenken, the Australian racing car driver who raced in Formula One in the early 70s. His early start is a great reflection on motoring in the 50s and his struggles in Formula One were not through a lack of talent. This is the first part of that interview. And some feedback, an incredible reaction to one of our videos. The details that some people see is surprising to say the least. And we had some massive feedback from our Facebook story about the 1958 FC Holden. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au with links to social media and the podcasts. So for this program, let's start with the news. Modern vehicles have many ways to make information available to drivers about the car's performance or entertainment options or even inputs to assist in the driving task. But excessive information or poorly communicated information and actions can be a distraction more than a help. Overdrive has put together a team to constructively look at how drivers are interacting with modern systems and to encourage best practice in future vehicle designs. Issues include excessive information, information that is not relevant to the immediate driving task, information that is difficult to read. Some numbers and symbols on vehicle screens are about the size of the bottom line of an eye chart. Or there are symbols that are not commonly understood or information that may encourage more aggressive driving or simply tasks that require multiple steps. This is all part of what is more formally called the human-machine interface. The team includes myself, David Brown, Michael Regan, who is Emeritus Professor from the Research Centre for Integrated Transport Innovation at the University of New South Wales, Alan Evans, former President of the NRMA and now Managing Director of Dino Dynamics, Terry Thompson, OAM, who is the President of the Government Liaison Council of Motor Clubs, Evan Jones, former safety officer with the Railways Department, and Ian Anderson, research fellow. We are currently engaging with others who may be involved. We are in conversation with an expert in the subject of ergonomics, not just from physical aspects, such as the setup of the driver's seat, but from a broader perspective of the emotional responses you can create for a regular or an infrequent driver of a vehicle. If you have any comments you would like to make about your own experiences, you can send a note to feedback at drivenmedia.com.au. BMW's medium-sized SUV, the X3, is the best-selling vehicle in the first four months of 2022 in the above $60,000 part of that segment, ahead of Mercedes-Benz GLC class wagon, Volvo's XC60, the Lexus NX and Audi's Q5. 
BMW now has an all-electric model, the iX3. With a sizable 80 kilowatt an hour battery, its rated range is 460 kilometres. It can take charging up to a rate of 150 kilowatts, which is not class leading. This means it can charge from 10 to 80 percent in 32 minutes. It has good space inside and comfortable, quiet travel, even at highway speeds. With a very credible 210 kilowatts and 400 newton meters and sure-footed handling, it copes with a spirited drive on a twisty secondary road. It has adaptive LED headlights, while BMW Laser Light can be specified as a $2,000 option. At speeds above 60 kilometres an hour, the Dynamic Laser Light module increases high beam range to a maximum of 650 metres and follows the course of the road. The digital screen for the driver is uncluttered and generally easy to read. A great feature is the adaptive cruise control with a one-press button that will set the speed to the current speed limit. It's priced from 114900 plus on-road costs. On the 1st of July 2021, New Zealand implemented the first step in its clean car discount program. An owner could apply for a fixed rebate if their car was a low-polluting vehicle on the eligibility list. The scheme was introduced to make it more affordable to buy low CO2 emission vehicles. From the 1st of April 2022, the clean car discount has become a sliding scale based on the vehicle's CO2 emissions. Cars with zero or low emissions will qualify for a rebate and those with high emissions will incur a fee. The monetary values can be substantial. In New Zealand dollars, the maximum rebate which is given to zero CO2 emission cars is $8,625 for a new car and $3,450 for a used car. At the other end of the scale, you could be charged up to a maximum of $5,175 for a new car or $2,875 for a used car. In Australian dollars, for new cars, the maximum rebate is nearly $7,800 and the maximum fee is nearly $4,700. There is a band range as a crossover point where no rebate or fee is offered between 146 grams per kilometre and 192 grams per kilometre. This would mean, for example, a normal petrol engine Corolla, Camry or, say, RAV4 would pay little or no fee while their hybrid models should get a reasonable rebate. Speaking to industry people in New Zealand, it appears that while there is general support for climate action, the impact on personal finances is likely to produce some significant trends in buyer preference and some significant opposition. It is also a concern the scheme is targeted at passenger vehicles and does not address more specific areas, the worst polluting trucks. And that has been the news. In the foreword to John Smale's excellent book, Formula One, The Australian and New Zealand Story, Australia's former world champion, Alan Jones, said, Formula One remains a game of chance. It is true that you make your own luck, but in Formula One, the house holds more of the cards than any casino, unquote. 
getting to race in Formula One is not always like a Hollywood movie where the good guy suffers adversity but invariably conquers all. There are many sliding door moments where a decision helps you to progress or stalls your chance to fully shine. The life and times of a Formula One driver covers a wide range of people and situations. 24 Australians have raced in Formula One championship events. Tim Schenken was an Aussie who raced in the category in the early 70s. He competed in 36 championship events. He has continued an association and officiating with motor racing and has been awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia, OAM, for his efforts, and he joins us on the line now. Good day, Tim. Thanks very much for your time. David, good morning. When did you first get the bug? When when did you become engrossed in motor racing? Well, it was at school. I went to school uh, in Melbourne, Camberwell Grammar School, and there was a boy there whose father raced hill climbs. And I went, he lived locally, I went around to his house and saw this little race car. It was um, powered by a motorcycle engine. And uh, a sort of light went on in my brain (laughs) and captured my imagination. So uh, I was bitten there and then. Mm. I went to some local hill climbs. I think Templestowe was probably the nearest uh, with this uh, lad's father and helped him push start the car, I guess, and clean it. Well, I've forgotten now. And that was the start of it. Up to then, I was really just like any young kid, not really knowing where I was going, just wandering around meaninglessly. And then a big event, the 1956 Australian Grand Prix. Yeah, 56 or 50, yeah, 56, I think it was the Olympic Grand Prix to Albert Park, which is odd because I've been involved, of course, um, uh, with the Grand Prix there since 1996. But uh, yes, I went there and stood, of course, the circuit ran in the opposite direction in those days. And I stood on the uh, golf course, it ran anti-clockwise, and I stood on the golf course there, separated from the race cars by a post and rail fence. I'm not sure that was going to help very much if uh, someone lost control, but it was wonderful. Sterling Mosh on all our locals, Stan Jones, um, Max Davison, Bridge Hunt, Doug Whiteford, John Roxburgh were all racing there. So it was, um, it just further excited me and further prompted my, um, my interest in the sport. And you got a passion, you know, a respect for Moss, I think, Sterling Moss. Yes, he was, uh, he was my hero. A lot of people ask me, well, why wasn't it Jack Brabham? But at the time, I uh, was working in, uh, in Melbourne in the city and I used to go to a book uh, store called the uh, Technical Book uh, Company and I always bought English motor magazines there. Of course, uh, they were full of, of Sterling Moss and hence my uh, enthusiasm there. And in fact, I was lucky I got to know him quite well years, many, many years later when I was uh, uh, living in England and um, I got to... Uh, visit him and stay in his house. So it was really something special. In fact, at the at the race in, uh, at Albert Park, I went into the paddock after the race and his car was there, 250F Maserati, and had some stone chips on the front. So I managed to peel a, some paint off that, put it into my autograph book, and then many years later, I got him to sign it. <laughs> Do you still have that? I still have that, yes. I still have it. It's probably on the bookshelf behind me. I once went to a Maserati event where they had that car, the 56 Grand Prix car on display. A gentleman asked me to take a photo of it. And I said, oh, it has a you know, significance to you. He said, I touched the wheel of that in the pits in 1956. <laughs> it was a time when you could engage more, couldn't you? You, were, you could get closer to that as you did as a young lad. 
Yes, that's right. Um, I mean, the, the pits was, uh, uh, or the paddock where the cars were kept was open. Uh, I don't recall, maybe there was a small charge getting in, but uh, it was free to the public. But it's like a lot of sports as things move on, of course, uh, they become more professional. Uh, the commercial side of um, of every sport has become an important component. So all of those areas have over the years have closed up. Another racing driver in Australia didn't do Formula One. Kevin Bartlett raced his mother's Morris Minor. I think it was even a convertible. Did you take a similar path with your early motor racing with the family wheels? I did. My um, and those uh, listeners who are old enough might re- recall the manufacturer Simca. It was a, a French brand, and my mother had a Simca. And uh, I hadn't had my license long. I was a member of a local car club. And that car club used to run the odd event uh, at Calder. So uh, I went out there one uh, weekend. I told my mother I was going to a barbecue somewhere locally, probably Frankston, somewhere like that down on the beach. And I went to Calder. And in the morning, they had quarter-mile sprints, which you could do without a competition license. I didn't have a competition license at the time. So I did the quarter-mile sprints. And I stayed on in the afternoon just to watch some of my friends who had licenses uh, racing, but I noticed as the cars were queuing up to go out onto the track to practice, no one was really checking, so I still had the number on the side of my car, so I just pulled up uh, in the queue and got out onto the track and thrashed around there and practiced, and I thought, well, this is all pretty cool, and then afterwards, I saw the grid sheets on the secretary of the meeting's uh, window, and sure enough, my name was there, so I lined up and did a race or two. I even won a cup, it's probably in the background there somewhere. In those days, the numbers, competition numbers would have been put on the window with white water-based paint. So I wiped all that off and uh, went home. So no one was the wiser. Did mum ever find out? No, no, mum never found out. And uh, I don't think CAMS or Motorsport Australia ever found out as well. So thankfully, the statutes of limitation are going to... um, save me from uh, ending up in front of the stewards. You do officiate. You would find a, a conflict of interest, wouldn't you, if a, <laughs> if a young lad tried to do that now? Yes, you're exactly right. Uh, but uh, motor racing, of course, is much better controlled now, much better managed. Uh, it was very amateur in those days. I think at the same race meeting, I helped out flag marshalling and, and you just stood out in the middle of the field with a Mm. With the track passing you, you had no protection. You just had to keep your wits out about you and be ready to jump out of the way if anyone went off the track. But uh, we've progressed a long way since then. You were obviously quick early. Was that, Did you grasp the need for efficiency, not just hooning? Do you think that was part of your innate skills? Well, I have to say, first of all, I was never a natural race driver. I had to work at it. I mean, there are very few natural race drivers uh, who we've seen, Fangio, Clark, Jackie Stewart, Jochen Wren. There, there, of course, have been uh, many. But I, I, I bought all the books. I, I bought a book called The Technique of Motor Racing, which was a book written about how to go, how to race. And I read these things uh, cover to cover. There are, of course, articles in all sorts of magazines along the same lines. So I, I knew the basics of it all. You went on hill climb, your early experience with your friend and his father. You went on and won the 1965 Australian Hill Climb Championship. What were you driving? 
Well, that was interesting because the, what, the vehicle I was driving sort of upset the establishment. Um, most of the, in the day, I'm just trying to remember the name, you had Lex Davison and Stan Jones still climbing. Bruce Walton was, the, was a star at the time. And they all had sort of Cooper-based cars with uh, race tyres, with big, probably 1,000cc, 1,100cc uh, motorcycle engines. But a friend of my brother's built a go-kart with a Speedway JAP engine, three-speed gearbox, no suspension. It's acted the same as a, a go-kart, direct steering. But for power-to-weight ratio, it was, uh, it was very good. And I, was, um, I started hill climbing this and winning hill climbs, fastest time of the day, um, class records, upsetting the establishment. And interesting enough, of course, you couldn't buy any sort of competition tyre for, for a go-kart in those days. So we used wheelbarrow tyres. And on the side was inscribed maximum speed five miles an hour. But it was quick, it was nimble, the tracks are very narrow. Of course, this is being a small car made for full use of that. And I won the Australian Hill Climb Championship in 65. Uh, I beat Colin Bond, who had a proper race car. He had a, I think it was a Lynx, with a uh, Peugeot, supercharged Peugeot engine running on race tyres. So I, uh, whenever I see Colin, I remind him uh, that. You talked about the teams and you mentioned Lex Davison. You were nearly to join his team, Acuri, Australia, but tragedy struck. What happened there? Yes, that was, uh, that was a, a, a tough time for me. I was a young lad. Lex had asked me to join the team. Uh, I went to visit him. Um, I think he had a, a place in uh, North Melbourne. Uh, he was involved in the shoe business. And he asked uh, me to join the team. He was looking at retiring. He'd already taken under his wings another uh, local lad, Rocky Tresize. And Lex was planning to retire. Rocky would take over that role. And then I was coming on behind. But unfortunately, Sandown, uh, Lex lost his life there, 64, maybe 65. The following weekend, it was a round of the Tasman Championship. The following weekend was a race in Longford, in, uh, just outside Launceston. The family, the Davison family, decided that uh, Rocky would drive uh, Lex's car, which... Uh, Rocky did, but then he had an accident and he was, uh, and he unfortunately was killed there. The weekend after that, I was racing my Lotus 18 under the Acuriostrally name at uh, Calder. So there was a big fuss in the media about, you know, this going to be the three time, three weekends, three, three fatalities, uh, but I survived. Did you have, have great trepidation going into that event? How did you feel? No, I didn't have any trepidation, but I did feel, how would I say, you know, had the media, the, the media um, attention was quite intense and I was not used to any of that. So uh, that sort of uh, was hard to deal with, but um, I moved on. I moved on. And that was the first part of our interview with Tim Schenken, Australian Formula One driver, and that was the early years. The full interview can be accessed from our website, drivenmedia.com.au, or our podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. We will have more of that interview in the weeks ahead. You're listening to Overdrive. In a world that seems to be all about SUVs, it's sometimes nice to drive a sports coupe. Last week, we drove the Subaru BRZ. Updated earlier this year, Subaru has managed to substantially improve what was already an excellent car. 
The most important thing to note is just how fun the BRZ is to drive. With rear-wheel drive and almost perfect balance, along with revised suspension, wider rear track, lower centre of gravity, and new performance tyres, means it's like driving a go-kart without the rigid suspension. The 2.4-litre petrol engine isn't overly powerful, but it's more than enough to provide an awesome driver engagement. The six-speed manual is fun, but I'll take the automatic version, please. Plus, it's easy to drive and gets all the safety features. Sitting inside, the redesigned layout continues. The driving experience, and it's slightly larger than before, meaning more room for two people. Forget the two rear seats. Instruments are old school meets new technology, and everything is easy and intuitive to use. Surprising, the visibility all round is good. BRZ is priced from $38,990 plus usual costs. This is Motoring Minute. I'm Brandon Fraser. This is Overdrive across Australia. A couple of things came up in the last week which we really must give some feedback on. About a year ago, we put up a video that followed our Melbourne correspondent, Chris, restoring his Mark I Jaguar into a reliable, spirited drive without losing its character. We've just received a comment from Jim Schmidt. He said, quote, His Mark I is awesome, but the Mark I with Chris wearing a Colorado Buffaloes football T-shirt is priceless. I also own a Mark I, live in Colorado, and also have a Colorado Buffaloes football t-shirt. Go Buffs! He continues, did Chris's son play for the Buffs? I know we had a couple of players from down under on the team a few years ago. Love the car, mine is a 1959, has a 3.8 litre engine, and is a four-speed with overdrive. World is small, I have been told. So we replied, the t-shirt was a gift from an American relative, but no family involvement in the buffs. The son's mother thinks she could have retired by now if he had have been a player. On another matter, we posted a photo on our Facebook page of a beautifully restored 1958 FC Holden and a picture of a plate affixed inside the engine bay which said... Overloading or overspeeding will void your warranty. It added that the maximum gross weight is 29 CWTSs. We had a flood of responses. Over 13,000 have viewed the post and 800 have liked it or commented on it. First comment is, what is a CWT? Well, it's an abbreviation for a hundredweight. Overdrive's resident mechanical engineer, Fred Brain, noted, apparently the units of weight all started in medieval times in the UK. Before the metric system came along, load capacities for vehicles were often, maybe always, in CWTSs. 100 weight equaled 112 pounds, and there were 20 hundred weights in an old ton, which was 2,240 pounds. Of course, the Yanks were different and more logical, as they had a 100-pound 100 weight and 2,000-pound ton. With a reflection on how old we're getting and a, and a reference to Monty Python, Fred finished by saying, tell all that to young people today and they just won't believe you. One other respondent made it more formal, the 100 weight, abbreviation CWT, formerly also known as the centum weight or quintal, is a British imperial and US customary unit of weight or mass. Another issue raised was 
overspeeding. Andrew Iverson said, I'd love to read the definition of overspeeding. How much do you have to do to be over? John McTeague added, I never overspeed. I always do the correct amount of speeding. Because the question is, how would you know? Modern cars have computers to tap into the car, but John Bellwood said perhaps then they could download all the engine data from the engine management ECU. Oh, what year was that? Talking of tapping in, David Hurd sent in a great photo. It was a picture of under the bonnet of an older car, outside which was a typewriter with cables leading into the engine. Now, you might void the warranty, but so what? Brian Tomage said, how long was warranty back then? Three months? I replied, my first car was older than I was. It was a Morris Minor, and it would take three months to build up to an illegal speed. Rex Hines then replied, mine was faster, as I lived at the top of a hill. Now, displaying the information was thought to be a good idea. Colin Wainwright said, Remember when Newts had to have the owner's name and tear weight written on the side just aft of the passenger's door? He posed the question, Does anyone know when that stopped? Well, Max Tivy said, No, he didn't know when it stopped, but it did come up just recently, he said, in a discussion with a few friends in relation to having the height of caravans and campers, and perhaps some trucks, forced to be clearly displayed in a similar fashion where it can be readily seen, might stop these clowns from driving under bridges with insufficient clearance. Then there was the nomenclature. Now, we talked of the FC, which actually followed the FE Holden. Now, why would that be the case? Well, one response said, the letters refer to the model year of release. F was 5, so the 50s. E was 6. So the FE was a 1956 release. They counted the letters down and didn't use I or L. So FC was the 1958 release. FB, a 1959 model, even though it didn't actually make it until 1960. And then the 1961 was the EK, using the same system, followed by the EJ, 62, and the EH, 63 before that model identification was discontinued. I did reply, I had a friend who wondered why the FC wasn't followed by the FA. I'm not sure if they thought that was a good name or a clear description. And unfortunate descriptions led Paul Bickford to say the Valiant mostly had alphabetical models, but they skipped from VC to VE, can't think why. Well, the later Holden Commodores had a V in the model name. VB was the first, but similar to the Valiant, they avoided having a VD. And finally, there were memories of the model. Matthew Brown, no relation, said, we owned a pale blue FC that my dad allowed me to sit on his lap to steer. I think I was about three or four, blimey. I think we went about five kilometres an hour. And Matt Wilson backed it up. He said, me too, steering with the big chrome horn rim. I always sat on the right leg to go faster. The earlier FE model was built from 1956 to 1958 with 53 kilowatts of power and has more horizontal bars on the grill than the later FC. The FC had a 2.2 litre three-speed gearbox and 54 kilowatts 
and was built between 1958 and 1960. The FC, they built 191,700 vehicles. The FE, 155,000, nearly 200 vehicles. You're listening to Overdrive. In amongst the run of SUVs and utes I've had lately, I've had the opportunity to jump back into a Citroen C4. Let me say that the immediate reaction after driving up the freeway is, what a fun little car this is. More a crossover hatchback than an SUV, the C4 Citroen is stylish, well-appointed, well-priced alternative to the more expensive European brands. The little 1.2 litre engine gives off a raspy exhaust note, it's quite zippy around town and more than capable of comfortable open road cruising. There's also a 3 mode drive select function. It comes with an 8 speed sports automatic transmission and is economical at around 6.5 litres per 100 k's on our week long test. Complementing the engine is a smooth hydraulic suspension that simply glides along on the freeway and around town it does its best to soak up road bumps and more. With a premium interior, quilted heated leather seats with massage function, innovative electronic transmission lever, an excellent heads up display the driver feels cocooned at all times. Priced from just under $38,000, the Citroen C4 pushes design boundaries. If you're looking for something just a little bit different to complement your personality, then perhaps the Citroen C4 is for you. This is a Motoring Minute. I'm Rob Fraser. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Tim Schenken, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au for links to the socials and podcasts. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Listening.